linguistic archives. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And before I do anything else, I want to correct what I think might have been a mispronunciation of one of our donors' names from last week. And I'm still not sure if I'm getting this right, but uh, I think the proper pronunciation of her name is Carolyn F., not uh, Caroline. But I do want you to know that uh, even though I may mispronounce your names from time to time, I nonetheless have a very warm place in my heart for our donors, and uh, and this week is no exception in that I want to thank Tidoro, or, and again, I'm not sure about this pronunciation, but I think it's Tidoro, or maybe it's Todoro. However, uh, I do want you to know that uh, your help in paying the expenses associated with producing these podcasts is uh, very greatly appreciated. Now, uh, let's just uh, get right into today's program, and I hope that you'll find today's talk as interesting as I have. Uh, in fact, it's only tape one of two, and so I'm planning on podcasting the second tape in just a few days because uh, I want to hear the rest of it myself. Now, this tape comes again from the Dr. Timothy Leary archive, and uh, thanks to Dennis Berry and Bruce Damer, uh, it's also uh, another one of the tapes that Michael Horowitz digitized, and uh, Michael, as you know, was Dr. Leary's archivist. Now, the only documentation I have on it is the uh, file name, which uh, indicates that the recording was made at the University of California, Santa Barbara, in 1982. But I think maybe the date is wrong and that it probably should be 1981. But if uh, any of our fellow saloners were there or somehow know otherwise, uh, please let me know and I'll uh, correct this uh, however I can. Now, what we're going to hear is a panel discussion, and uh, we're going to hear the panel in this order. First will be Timothy Leary. Next will be Frank Barron, who uh, was a famous professor of civil engineering at Berkeley, uh, among other universities. And he'll be followed by Dr. Andrew Weil. And then we'll hear from Dr. Walter Houston Clark. And uh, let me tell you a little something about Walter Clark before we hear what he has to say. Uh, in fact, here is something that Ralph Metzner wrote about him. Old age is often synonymous with rigidity rather than wisdom. Not so with Walter Houston Clark, professor of psychology of religion at Andover Newton Theological School in Newton, Massachusetts. Former dean and professor at the Hartford School of Religious Education, author of The Oxford Group in 1951 and The Psychology of Religion in 1958, and founder of the Society for the Scientific Study of Religion. In an article on mysticism as a basic concept in defining the religious self, Professor Clark wrote that, and I quote, The psychedelic drugs are simply an auxiliary which, used carefully within a religious structure, may assist in mediating an experience which, aside from the presence of the drug, cannot be distinguished psychologically from mysticism. Studies have indicated that, when the experience is interpreted transcendentally or religiously, Chances are improved for the rehabilitation of hopeless alcoholics and hardened criminals. Even though observations like these mean that the psychologist can learn a little more of the religious life, in no sense does it ultimately become any less of a mystery. And uh, that is just to give you a little idea of the caliber of person who you'll be hearing from. 
Back in the day, uh, Dr. Clark was at the pinnacle of the intellectual establishment when it came to the topic of theology, and he was a strong proponent and advocate of our sacred medicines. How bold he was, and uh, how sorely brave men like him and Houston Smith and Alan Watts uh, now seem to be in uh, rather short supply. Now, after Walter Clark, we're going to be hearing from Paul Krasner. And if you don't know uh, already who Paul is, you may want to take the time to Google him and uh, read a little something about his life. While Paul may be best known as a comedian, he uh, also has been one of the most important social activists of the last 40 years or so. And on top of everything else, he's uh, very approachable and is an extremely nice guy. So uh, now let's join this great cast of characters at UC Santa Barbara sometime in the early 1980s and uh, hear what was on their minds. Well, hello. <laughs> um, for the next uh, hour or two, we're going to have, uh, I hope, a, an ending flow of higher intelligences moving around the room and coming up here, uh, to start things off, I, I, asked, I was going to ask uh, two or three people to um, join me now with the hope and the expectation that later on more will be coming up. Uh, the title of this afternoon's colloquium is Higher Intelligence. Now, <laughs> I, I did not suggest that, but uh, being stuck with it, uh, there's only one thing to do, and that's go with it, huh? <laughs> um, I, I thought uh, myself and other people have suggested that um, we should try to focus on the future of intelligence and the future of higher intelligence uh, from the scientific point of view. And um, so I was going to ask Frank Barron if he would come and uh, join me. And um, Andy Weil said he would come. And uh, Walter Clark, uh, would you be willing to come up and join us for a few minutes? And then... Um, as we go on, we'll, we'll be discussing things, and I hope that before the afternoon is over, <laughs> we'll be down there and everyone will be moving <laughs> in an unbroken flow uh, up and around. <laughs> it's, uh, I think it's all about the brain, or certainly the brain is the key to consciousness and intelligence. The... Um, the brain, as we well know, is the taboo organ in the 20th century. In the 19th century, 100 years ago in uh, Victorian England or in um, Freudian Vienna, it was the body that was the taboo organ. And strong men uh, would faint at the sight of a young lady's ankle, a young man's ankle, and vice versa. <laughs> I hope I haven't left anyone out. <laughs> uh, in any case, the human body, uh, uh, for many reasons, is no longer uh, uh, such a taboo um, situation. Any newsstand, uh, the, of being, it's now unavoidable. You, you can hardly walk down the streets of any city without seeing pictures of um, the glorious and wonderful instrument which is called the human body. So the brain, I think it's safe to say, is now the taboo organ. Uh, we simply have not been ready as a species to understand, to come to grips with uh, the meaning of the human brain. 
There are many other things that we have not come to grips with which are associated with the human brain. I say the same thing is true of the, of the bomb. Wouldn't you say so, Frank? Uh, that uh, for the last... Uh, you know, uh, it struck many of us, many of us, uh, that there is quite a correlation uh, between the development, the discovery of mass-produced, easily available mass-consumption brain activators like LSD coming along exactly at the time when uh, human intelligence and human neurology deciphered uh, the uh, secret of the atom and fish in the atom and made available for our use or abuse uh, that source of energy. The brain is uh, 40 billion. They, they keep increasing. It's like inflation. One of the things... <laughs> I used to say it was 10 billion cells, then it was 15, then it was 20 for a while, and then it's like gold, then it went up to... <laughs> Scientific American said a few uh, months ago that they're actually... Um, like <laughs> the cerebellum itself makes the cortex look like uh, you know, uh, small potatoes. So we are dealing with an instrument um, which... Uh, we do know it has more connections than there are atoms in the universe. Um, the brain... I'm convinced, and I'm sure that very few of you would debate this issue, the brain is a perfect instrument. Unless you have a steel plate in your head or your forehead is less than two inches, but, uh, you know, the average, normal, middle-class, dull person is equipped with uh, essentially a perfect instrument. Now it's the programming, it's the accidental imprinting it's, uh, that creates the conflicts and creates the... Uh, sufferings and the anguishes and the disillusionments and so forth. But uh, I see no reason why, why to assume anything different that, that the human brain is a perfect instrument and because we are primitive, uh, superstitious savages kind of looking at it from the outside, uh, not understanding how to activate it, how to access it, uh, what its dimensions are. We do know, certainly everyone in this room knows, that um, there are realms and uh, infinities and levels and circuits uh, and uh, spheres of intelligence and perhaps we haven't even dreamed of that uh, reside within uh, the few inches behind our skull waiting and ready to be accessed when the genetic time has come. And I think that genetic time has come. Um, I have been reading for the last few years uh, a book which I'm sure most or all of you are familiar with. It's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions uh, by Thomas S. Kuhn. Uh, Michael Polanyi has also written about this. As a matter of fact, most philosophers of science have been uh, discussing this issue. How does society, or indeed how does a species, uh, handle a new technology, a new discovery, a new paradigm, to use Kuhn's uh, uh, phrase, which is going to change everything. Uh, now, I'm here to tell you, and I'm sure you're ready to agree with me, that it ain't easy to introduce into a jumpy, easily spooked species of domesticated primates in the last 20th century, <laughs> whose heads have been screwed up for the preceding 2,000 years by the Judeo-Christian Bible, <laughs> uh, with its... Uh, uh, I'm sure most of you know this, but it's, it's always worthwhile to review the, the amusing the fact that um, um, the first book of the Judeo-Christian Bible, Genesis, 
starts off uh, with an evolutionary theory of creation that everything was created by uh, a man named Jehovah. Naturally, it was a man uh, who admittedly, without any shame, laid us right out. He's a bad-tempered, mean, paranoid, jealous, <laughs> mafio, capo, condominium owner. Who, uh, who, uh, um, who uh, created this Garden of Eden for uh, Adam and, and then later Eve, <laughs> who was thrown in as, you know, to help Adam as a servant. <laughs> they read that, believe it. Even in the 20th century, they read it. Um, and he said in the Garden of Eden, uh, you can do anything you want, except there are two things you can't do. There's a tree there that has the fruit, and you, it's a controlled substance, and you were forbidden by eternal law. <laughs> to ingest, absorb, sniff, or in any way. Because <laughs> if you do, the blinds will fall from your eyes and you will see through good and evil and become a god like me. And Adam said, well, gee, I don't want to do that, sir. And then um, <laughs> Anyway, there's the other, the other tree, uh, which is an FDA, DEA control substance. And uh, you're forbidden to touch of that because if you eat that... You'll become immortal and become a god. And of course, uh, Adam said he didn't want anything to do with um, transcending good and evil. He knew that would put a lot of people out of business. And he certainly didn't want immortality because that would really blow the religious thing into a, a new dimension. And as you know, uh, the Judeo-Christian Bible is not very friendly to uh, women, uh, as you probably know. Uh, they blamed it all on Eve, didn't they? Uh, uh, my theory is that uh, Eve never bought that story right from the beginning. The middle of the Jehovah jumped in the squad car and back to headquarters. She went over to that tree and she took the fruit and uh, the rest is history. <coughs> uh, going back to Polanyi and the Kuhn. You thought I forgot about that, didn't you? <laughs> Short-term memory loss, right. <laughs> Well, that's just one of the... goes with the territory, you know. The higher you get and the faster you're moving, you'd say, why'd I come out on this trip anyway? <laughs> or you've all had the experience, I'm sure, of uh, starting at sunset and, uh, you know, looking at the stars uh, up there or around you and uh, watching the sunrise in the morning and having several thousand times solved the riddle of the universe and explained everything in the morning, you forget what it was. <laughs> Take notes. <laughs> that wonderful story uh, of uh, our old Harvard colleague. Uh, hey, we have a little Harvard reunion group here, don't we? <laughs> Frank, I hope we can... Uh, <laughs> there is a higher intelligence, isn't there? <laughs> Maybe we can fool around with that Harvard thing we've been talking about. No, not about the old people, not the new stuff. Maybe. No, I played the right wing in 1916. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, Kuhn, uh, you know, uh, gives many examples of how difficult it was to introduce a new model which is going to change the structure of consciousness in any society. Lord Kelvin, um, you know, for, went to his deathbed saying that the X-ray was just an elaborate hoax. <laughs> 
Rutherford, who was the leading atomic physicist at the time, said, you know, it was simply impossible to fish in the atom. Uh, you know what happened to Simmelweiss because he told doctors to wash their hands before they treated patients. Uh, Lord Lister got the Nobel Prize a generation later for that. The, uh, the introduction of a, of a new technology, a new paradigm, a new world model to a uh, primitive society takes a lot of delicate uh, doing. You can't spook them too quickly. Uh, uh, Polanyi says you have to attach um, the, um, the new model to some of the old uh, um, theories. That's why I think uh, in the 1960s, uh, many people attempted to, um, uh, we all did, didn't we, Walter, say that the easiest way to understand uh, the psychedelic experience was in the religious mode because uh, psychology certainly had no uh, terms or phrases uh, except things like psychotomimetic, remember? <laughs> I hope you don't. <laughs> um, so... Uh, uh, the use of the religious metaphor to uh, comfort people and assuage people and somehow you know, seduce people and to get them to relax about the notion that it is now possible to access your, your brain, it is now possible to activate circuits that were undreamed of before, it is now possible to uh, learn how to dial and tune your brain so that uh, this will be no more excuse uh, to feel any way you want to feel, There's no limits to the creativity and imagination and novelty and intelligence uh, uh, that can be generated by this instrument, the brain, whose function we are now realizing is to fabricate reality. So we use the religious metaphor, and uh, that was, uh, uh, well, it was a wonderful experience, wasn't it, Walter? I think, though, that the time has come, we're now one generation beyond 1960s, where we can really get down and uh, address this problem with the uh, intelligence and the discipline and the courage uh, that uh, is necessary. Uh, the next step in uh, accessing and talking about the brain uh, is to use the scientific metaphors. And uh, I certainly hope that one of the many wonderful things that will come out of this conference uh, uh, this week is uh, the uh, feeling that uh, of encouragement and support and active participation in more and more scientific studies of uh, the tools for accessing the brain, drugs. Now, I think I simply should say right in the beginning my point of view on drugs. Um, uh, I'm a thousand percent pro-dope. Do <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not advocating that anyone do any specific thing. The more you understand about the complexities of the brain and the psychopharmaceuticals which activate it, the more uh, cautious, the more uh, careful, uh, the more um, experimental, the more scientific you are before you rush around uh, activating this instrument. But I think the time has come to, um, to be scientific. And the nice thing is that... Um, uh, I think that uh, the DNA code or the Gaia intelligence or egg wisdom or I don't know what name you give her, uh, the person who has designed and created this wonderful adventure uh, with the tools that we have at our access, uh, I, I think what DNA had in mind um, at this moment in our revolution was that uh, uh, the first generation after World War II, the first baby boom uh, generation, uh, the, the greatest, the greatest generation in human history, the largest of young people that were born in that wonderful position to, uh, to become more intelligent, uh, 
in an affluent, secure a society like the American society, uh, founded on the principle of uh, individual freedom, individual exploration, frontier thinking, no thumbing at authority. I mean, it'll only really happen in a mass level in a place like uh, America at the moment of America's uh, uh, highest moment, uh, or almost highest moment. Um, uh, it was inevitable, too, that um, the technology that would develop um, the uh, atomic energy would uh, stumble upon the keys to access the brain. Uh, it would be inevitable that the first generation of those who introduced this uh, powerful uh, tool uh, would, uh, would upset irritate, offend, alarm, and spook society. It's a wonder that any of us are alive. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, in any other time, in any other place except wonderful America, we wouldn't be around uh, as long as we have been around, uh, or we would be having reunions of this sort. So uh, the time has come to, uh, to uh, become scientific about uh, drugs. Um, <laughs> You know, I find it a scandal, a humiliation, an embarrassment uh, to have to say uh, some of the things that we're saying here today, 20, 21 years after we all were there at Harvard, you know, what has the government done or what have the pharmaceutical companies done? What has our intellectual community done? Uh, you know, I mean, here, here, you know, they just simply couldn't look the fact in the eye that the human brain can be accessed, uh, dialed, and tuned. The, uh, not only has the government uh, and uh, religion and politics uh, and every aspect of our intellectual community done everything in their power to derogate, you know, I mean, <laughs> the, the taboos surrounding the word drugs, uh, certainly uh, we're so used to it, we don't realize how totally insane it is. Um, the... Uh, The way it worked was that um, between seven and eight million people, most of them young people in the 1960s and early 70s, um, uh, did access their brain. They learned how to do it and they did it. And now, uh, 15 or 20 years later, there's a new generation of uh, young scientists and older scientists too because it's, a, it's in the air, it's a zeitgeist. You know, it, it, when it starts to happen, it happens all over. When it backbones, it was Robert Anton. Is Robert Anton Wilson here? Well, anyways, Robert Anton Wilson says, uh, how about a round of applause for Robert Anton Wilson? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Robert, yeah. Would you come up and join us? Would you come up and join us? Yeah. All crafts are expected to be on this panel. Okay, yeah. And we're saving as a treat, uh, and as a surprise, and as a wonderful package of joy, none other than Paul Krasner. You're doing that. <laughs> Watch it now. That's, that's, the, that's the zone. You got through it. Good. <laughs> um, I'm just going to say two or three more things, and then we'll turn it over to the panel and the rest of you. Um, the point of view that you can, uh, that the function of human life from now on 
is to learn how to access, activate, direct, manage, and control your own brain. I mean, there's simply no point in living if you don't do that. Socrates said it to what, three centuries B.C. He said, the only function of, a, of an intelligent life is to learn how to get smarter. The pursuit of knowledge, the increase of intelligence. It's the oldest, it's the oldest concept in human history. It dates back to the first book of the Vedas along the Ganges when Soma was introduced. This notion of higher intelligence, of yoga, of using your life as a, as a, as a continual hierarchy of, uh, of uh, getting higher, self-development, personal growth, so forth. Um, it's now taking over science, and uh, uh, I want to suggest uh, six or seven branches of science in which the same notion of self-actualization, uh, taking responsibility for your own destiny, um, realize that no one's going to do it for you, you've got to manage it yourself. Uh, you know that the second law of thermodynamics has been repealed by Ilya Prigogine. I mean, I never believed in the second law of thermodynamics and entropy. If that wasn't a Protestant ethic... I mean, <laughs> God is some banker up there saying, well, you're dreaming. I never went for that. Well, anyway, Prigogine has gloriously, uh, scientifically and empirically uh, said that, no, there, we can dissipative structures, we, can, uh, we have to dissolve it. Sure, there's entropy because it's simply uh, loosening up before the next structure takes over. Uh, we've repealed uh, the law of gravity, <laughs> so surely, <laughs> not only internally, but uh, uh, our, our space adventurers are going where no women of men have gone before. Um, it's no accident that the uh, space movement totally paralleled and co correlated with the movement inward. And it's no accident that when the inner movement, uh, the great um, uh, you know, acid movement kind of went underground for a while, the space movement went underground during Nixon. And it's no accident that now uh, with the space shuttle and the new acid that's around... Uh... <laughs> okay, we see, we repeal the law of entropy, so that now we can intelligently uh, uh, dissipate the structures around us and intelligently and harmoniously link up to make better. We have, uh, we have um, repealed the law of gravity. We're not going to spend the rest of our lives like barnacles and snails crawling around the bottom of this uh, 6,000 mile, you know. We're going to build our own cities in space. Uh, the DNA code, recombinant DNA research, um, uh, the Gaia hypothesis of Lovelock and uh, Margulis, um, uh, the uh, immunologists who are now learning how to inoculate us against not just typhoid and polio, but things like stupidity, impotency, <laughs> aggression, and so forth. Uh, our friends um, in Berkeley and at UCLA are telling us all the time that within two to five years we'll have a pill or inoculation which will double the human lifespan so that the death, uh, which has always been the, the ultimate uh, source of helplessness and pessimism and Judeo-Christian uh, money-making, is going to be not... <laughs> Is going to be, you know, it's simply dumb, stupid to die. So you know, notice running through every site, the new psychology, humanist psychology, of course, the new uh, understanding of drugs. Every one of these disciplines, quantum physics, Jack Sarfati and Nick Herbert and the rest of them saying, you know, the universe is exactly what you think it is. So you better make think grandly and gloriously and, uh, and high, wide and handsome. All these sciences are now saying the same thing. It's up to us to step into, the, you know, the driver's seat. Uh, as Henry Ford said, in their own machinery, and, uh, and write a new script. So it's going to be science uh, that's going to lead the way. I happen to believe, and I think Paul agrees with me, that <laughs> if it's not... <laughs> yeah, you agree. All right. I can, uh, then I can say it. If, it. if it ain't funny, it's not true. <laughs>
It's not the survival of the fittest. It's the survival of the people with a sense of humor who can say, look at those dinosaurs. We won't go that way. <laughs> you know, the ability to laugh at yourself back there. The, you know, the, 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 the butterfly giggling at the caterpillar because we are caterpillars and we are butterflies. Um, you can only evolve and mutate when you can laugh at your old form and go beyond it. So uh, that's why we're on the circuit. Right, Paul? Uh, also to pay the rent. I said also to pay the rent. Pay the rent. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I, I'd like to ask uh, the rest of the panel to come on up, uh, one after each other, and uh, uh, um, take this wonderful... Uh, uh, symbiotic community we have here and new and higher in different directions. Uh, Frank, you want to start off? I could tell. Well, those of you who were here last night will recall that, uh, that I began by, uh, out of some concern with what topics the colloquium would cover, I began by mentioning four or five problems that I hoped would be discussed. I see now that I had no need to worry. Everything has been covered so far. Uh, Tim, as for your title, the title of this session, Higher Intelligence and Creativity, I have it on good authority that there was a printer's error involved. The printer, who is a member of Linkage, uh, dropped an ER at the end of the high. So we have high intelligence and creativity. I'll make a few remarks about the word intelligence, which I would like to rescue from the word that's usually put right after it, quotient. Intelligence quotient is the phrase that we hear most often, uh, apparently referring to intelligence. Uh, And uh, with due respect to Alfred Binet, who is generally credited with being the inventor of the intelligence test, he loathed the term intelligence quotient. He did not invent it. It was was suggested by uh, the German psychologist Stern, and the the arithmetic was done by Wundt and Binet, who was the pioneer in the development of uh, work on creative thinking, uh, regretted that he had yielded to the initial practical Uh, request from the French government to develop a method for sorting out students who are beginning the schooling system and who would probably not profit from it. So that the intelligence quotient is a derivative of a test which was was meant to identify factors in scholastic aptitude. And scholastic aptitude ain't all there is to intelligence. But that Uh, The broadening of it requires quite a bit of, I think, new language and new ways of thinking about the general concept of intelligence. Even the word gift, a very good word, giftedness, uh, has been taken over so that it's defined in terms of like the upper 2% on an IQ test. Gift is a word that has a very much more general uh, ancient meaning. And uh, I think the, that word or the word powers, mental powers, is what I should like us to be talking about. And mental powers include things that, oh, from the very ancient traditions, uh, uh, 
things that have to do with ecstasy, the leaving of the body, and some of the religious insights, the idea of bilocation, uh, <clears throat> the powers of the Sita, the yogic powers, uh, and uh, beginning with Nietzsche's popularization of the phrase, the idea of, of being able to act without the kinds of socially imposed internal controls defined as good or evil, but rather uh, acting in a, a free, spontaneous manner that is constructive, but that does not have that imposed as the, the rules by which one acts. Uh, that, uh, plus the idea of conflict-free grace, uh, something concerning psychological androgyny, uh, the ability to appreciate and act upon both the masculine and feminine principles in oneself, in the mind. All of these things are parts of what we ought to be thinking about when we think about, ment- about intelligence, uh, mental powers or giftedness. And those are the very things that are uh, in all of us that, that we can develop but don't always and the work on creativity that I've engaged in has been, of course, uh, within the context of an empirical science and the development of research methods and findings. Uh, but I think the most important fact about it, as we proceeded with a kind of uh, criticism and change of the sorts of intelligence tests that were then in use, was that we decided that creative thinking, creative reason, does not have any there are no right answers to such tests, whereas in the usual IQ test, you have to give the answer that has been already decided upon by the person who made up the test. Uh, quite different from that are the, the functions that are involved in creative thinking where there is no right answer because it's moving into a future that's unknown. There's no ceiling, as they say. Uh, uh, the latitude is enormous for possibilities. So that is, I think, the essential meaning of the work on creativity the other part of our, uh, our topic here. That's all I have to say. Uh, let me give you a few examples in support of Tim's argument from the field that I fight some of these battles in clinical medicine. Uh, medicine is deeply conservative. And I see things beginning to happen in medicine today that I think happened in other areas of society in the 60s. And it's both uh, strange and frustrating and funny to watch it happen. And it revolves around this idea of, a, of the breakdown of the old model or paradigm and the beginning of a new one which is very difficult for people to accept. In conventional medicine today, things that you can't see or perceive with your senses or measure with instruments don't exist. That includes the mind. So the mind does not exist for doctors. It's not something that's real, and although it may be given lip service and mentioned here and there in little phrases, it has no real meaning in medical theory or practice. That makes it very difficult for doctors, and this is how paradigms break down, to take account of a number of phenomena that pass before their eyes every day. Now, what do you do if you're attached to an old model and anomalies begin to accumulate that you can't explain? First, you try to explain them with ever more complicated theories, but if they're too big for that, then you try not to look at them or sweep them under the rug or pretend that they have no relevance to what you're doing. 
that is what I see happening all over the place in medicine today. The inability of doctors, for example, to explain why systems of treatment based on theories that make no sense in their terms cure people is one of the most interesting ones, and that's one that's been around for a long time. When homeopathy first came to America, it had tremendous successes in the 1840s. Homeopaths were much better than regular doctors at curing people of major infectious diseases. There were cholera epidemics in the Midwest, for example, and they had much better cure records. That's why large numbers of allopaths began to convert to homeopathy. That scared regular doctors and eventually led to the creation of the AMA. One of the first attacks, organized attacks on homeopathy, the first one really, was a pamphlet written by Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was a professor at Harvard Medical School. And it was called Homeopathy and Its Kindred Delusions. And one of the things he said in that that I thought was wonderful, he said the fact that homeopathy cures people shouldn't be admitted as evidence. (laughs) Because, he said, 90% of patients will get better no matter what you do to them. Now, that's a very interesting statement. I happen to think it's true. (laughs) It's very interesting. Look at the inability of doctors to grasp the placebo effect or its significance. I mean, that's a marvelous, magical, wonderful thing. And the things that doctors believe about placebos are just amazing. One of the things they believe is that placebo effects are somehow less real and less important than so-called objective effects. I mean, you can die of a placebo effect. There's a well-known phenomenon called placebo death. There are placebo total cures of cancer. What more can you ask for from an effect? Um, often, placebo effects are mu- can be much. There's no limit to their magnitude. Another misbelief about placebo effects that doctors like to parade out is that only some people show them. Uh, either one, a common statement is that only people who are less educated are susceptible of placebo effects. If you've been to college and certainly you've been to medical school, you're not supposed to show placebo effects. <laughs> Nonsense. Or, they, or that southern Italians are very vulnerable to placebo effects, but Scandinavians aren't. Everybody, everybody, if the circumstances are right, can show placebo effects. Uh, Another great misconception is the failure to distinguish between two kinds of placebos. What most people think of when we talk about placebos is sugar pills. That's one kind of placebo. That's the inactive placebo, something that has no intrinsic effect. But the much more interesting kind of placebo is the active placebo, something that does do something on its own, but it doesn't directly cause the end effect that you look at. And active placebos are much more powerful than inactive ones at generating belief because they make you feel different. They make you make something happen to you. I have maintained, and I still do, that all psychoactive drugs are really active placebos. They make you feel temporarily different, and you associate that feeling with a certain state of consciousness. Well, I think most medical procedures are active placebos. The act of walking into a doctor's office is an active placebo. Certainly getting injected is an active placebo, regardless of what's in the syringe. And that can produce major, major effects. I I like to tell uh, stories about wart cures, Uh, something that I go around collecting. I have a huge list now of things people do successfully to get rid of warts. And they range from rubbing a cut potato on the wart and then burying it under a certain kind of tree at a certain phase of the moon to being touched by the neighborhood wart healer. Uh, Some very strange one. I've found a few that don't even involve the wart. I've met uh, uh, one guy who told me that his mother had told him in the middle of the night, he should go down to the refrigerator and steal something from the refrigerator, and she must never know what it was. And that was it. And the wart would fall. <laughs> now, what, do, what does that have in common with rubbing a potato on a wart? There's no unity there, but there's tremendous unity to the response. Very typically, somebody does one of these things in the afternoon or evening, and the next morning wakes up and the wart falls off and doesn't grow back. The less common pattern is that you do one of these things and over the next two to three weeks the wart shrivels up and dries up. Now compare that to the way we treat warts in regular medicine. We burn them out, gouge them out, 
freeze them off with liquid nitrogen or put an acid on that's so corrosive that you have to be very careful of getting it on normal tissue. And in better than 50% of the instances when we do that kind of treatment, the warts grow back, often multiply. Now, <laughs> the reason I'm interested, this is a perfect example of what happens when a great big anomaly grows in your paradigm. The wart cures... <laughs> <laughs> Wart cures are not uncommon. I think better than about 50% of the population of this part of the world has experienced wart cures, usually as children. This is a very common phenomenon. Despite the fact that this is so common and so dramatic, literally in 12 hours, a foreign tissue associated with strange foreign organisms, viruses, very disordered-looking tissue growth, disappears, melts away, falls off, and doesn't grow back, no one has researched that. No one has taken that seriously as a question for physiological research. What happens there? The unity unifying factor is the mind, its belief in what you do. And somehow that gets translated through the nervous system and something happens at the tissue level very dramatically and very fast. I, if I were in charge of giving out money for cancer research in this country, I would give a big chunk of it to trying to find out what the mechanism of a wart cure is. And the fact that that is not taken seriously is an example of what happens when you cling to a model that doesn't allow for things that are real and important like the mind, which indeed I think in medicine has been very taboo and very forgotten and to watch doctors painfully and awkwardly trying to discover the mind in 1981, as I say, is both frustrating and funny and I suppose ultimately hopeful. <laughs> I guess most of you who are here at the last session uh, suspect that my name is the same as it was when I <laughs> talked in that session. My name is Walter Clark, and uh, I'm an old friend of Tim's, which explains why apparently it wasn't enough for me to lead people astray in the last session. <laughs> but he wants me to do the same thing in this session. Um, the, uh, whenever I'm uh, connected with Tim in any way, I'm reminded of uh, the story about Lincoln and his generals. Uh, as most of you know, uh, at the first part of the Civil War, he had a very conservative general by the name of McClellan. And one day, <laughs> McClellan was... Uh, uh, was giving uh, Lincoln a tour of the defenses of Washington. And they got around uh, behind Washington, and there was uh, a beautifully placed cannon uh, aimed up north. And Lincoln said, uh, well, what, uh, what was that doing? And uh, McClellan thought for a little bit, and he said, uh, well, he agreed it was very unlikely that the Southerners would attack Washington from the north. But in case they did, uh, they'd be prepared with what was necessary to defend Washington. And Lincoln said it reminded him of, um, of a, a debating society that he used to belong to when he was a struggling attorney uh, on the prairie. And uh, they had this group of people, and they'd get together uh, about once a month and uh, own their, hone their, their minds and uh, their legal skills by having arguments with one another. And they argued about almost anything. 
And uh, one time, the uh, the uh, uh, the thing that they were going to have as the basis for the discussion was the question: Why do men have breasts? And uh, Lincoln. <laughs> Lincoln said that they argued that back and forth, and, uh, and uh, arguments pro and con were given. And after about three hours of that, uh, they came to the solemn conclusion that uh, it was extremely unlikely that a man would ever have a baby. But just in case he did, <laughs> they would have the means to take care of it. Well... <laughs> Whenever, uh, when I'm, whenever I'm on the platform with Tim, uh, I have to be prepared for practically anything. Uh, and uh, I uh, uh, would like to tell you just a little bit about uh, a subject that I started to talk about last time uh, and tell you about uh, some of his work with, uh, with convicts. Uh, naturally, when he first told me that he had, uh, uh, he was giving psilocybin to convicts, and he had the convicts uh, talking like medieval mystics, I didn't believe him. Uh, but he persuaded me, let him uh, introduce to me uh, one of these convicts and and uh, or a group of them, and sure enough, hold up closer, yeah. okay. Sure enough, Tim was right. He did have these convicts, and some of them were uh, the most dangerous convicts uh, that Massachusetts had. And uh, Tim had them talking like medieval mystics, and not only that, but they were acting that way. I told you the story of the man who um, had uh, had a vision of uh, Jesus Christ, and uh, had helped Christ carry his cross towards Calvary. And then afterward, uh, he told me that uh, when the vision faded, uh, he said, I looked out of the window, and all my life came before my eyes, and I said, what a waste. Well, of course, this was the turning point in this uh, particular convict's life, uh, then able, they'd been able to do nothing with him. Uh, the worse they treated him, uh, the more they disciplined him, uh, the more he, uh, he affected uh, escapes and difficulties and all the rest, until Tim came along. And uh, he said, uh, he told me that, uh, he said, well, uh, Tim Leary was the first man that he had ever known uh, where he thought this fellow was absolutely on his side. And, uh, and uh, uh, well, this was, uh, this was the turnaround for this man. And then uh, he went on and uh, influenced his, uh, his uh, friend, who, another, who was another of the bad boys. And uh, he had a religious experience and pretty soon this group had uh, a uh, an organization that they call the uh, 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 what was it the self 
defense group, self-help, self-help group, uh, within the walls of the prison. And uh, uh, not only were they doing therapy to themselves, but I sat in on some of these sessions, and I was amazed at how effective these convicts were with one another. Now, if I'd been ahead of one of these sessions, of course, they would have been able to con me like nobody's business, but they couldn't con one another. And when they determined uh, that they were going to go straight, uh, they really met it. Well, now, um, after Tim got into a little trouble with uh, Harvard and uh, uh, was... uh, Uh, dismissed uh, from Harvard uh, without a hearing. Uh, uh, Whenever my blood pressure gets too low and uh, I want to get it up, uh, I I think of that injustice that uh, was perpetrated. (laughs) By the Harvard faculty, And when a meeting was called of people uh, on the faculty to protest uh, this this, uh, uh, outrage, uh, there wasn't more than than five or ten members of that great faculty who were willing to go out on a limb for Tim. And Richard. And, and, uh, yeah, and uh, Richard Alpert. And... uh, well, uh, soon after that, as soon after that, I, uh, I brooded about that. And uh, <clears throat> then uh, uh, Tim and I had a mutual friend whose name was Walter Pankey. Uh, Walter Pankey had a degree from Harvard Medical School and also from Harvard Divinity School. And uh, I persuaded Pankey that Tim's work uh, deserved to be uh, to be studied uh, more systematically and thoroughly uh, in order to demonstrate what could be done using Tim's method. Well, uh, Walter finally had to leave uh, the environments of Harvard, and he went down to um, uh, he went down to Baltimore where he worked at the uh, Maryland Psychiatric Research Center. And uh, he uh, invited me to come down there as a consultant. And uh, uh, we worked together for four or five months. And uh, I designed uh, a... uh, I, I, I uh, I prepared the research design for this work with convicts. And we got permission from the uh, uh, from uh, the uh, uh, the people at the uh, prisons in Maryland, and uh, we were all ready to uh, uh, to to do this work when Panky died in a very tragic accident, and that was the end of that. Oh yes, and I should say uh, that. Uh, we also had, I also had permission to do work uh, with the uh, Massachusetts penal system. 
and uh, we were ordered to take off with that. And then uh, the chromosome hoax came along. You know that uh, uh, the uh, LSD was supposed to knock your your chromosomes uh, for a loop. So that that was why that particular piece of research never got off the ground. Uh, and uh, at any rate, our, what I was leading up to was that here I have this beautiful research design uh, gathering dust in my files. I don't know how many times I've tried to get uh, somebody interested in doing something about this. But I must admit uh, that Tim has not been of any help to me uh, for the reason uh, I understand that he's writing his autobiography, but I know how he's writing it. Uh, He's writing it with all kinds of wit and humor. And what we need is an, uh, an autobiography that is going to move uh, the bureaucrats down in Washington. And they don't understand wit and humor. Uh, And therefore, they don't understand Timothy. And I've been trying to persuade him just to tell the facts of his life. You know, no humor, just uh, one after another. And I'm sure that this would be a, a great success and even some of the bureaucrats in Washington would do something about it. Well, those are a few of my random comments on Tim and his work. I think I've OD'd on cosmic consciousness. Where is Carl Sagan, now that we need him? The the Barry Manilow of science. Uh, 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 Well, I I suppose I should mention that uh, I've changed my image a little. Uh, I'm now uh, the uh, psychedelic punk branch of the Hare Krishna. Uh, And I I joined a gang. This is a group of artists and writers and performers who were always too chicken shit to join a gang but went to jackets. Uh, So we all got these great jackets with this dragon on the back. Uh, And uh, it's good. It cures paranoia because you used to walk along thinking, what are they looking at? Now you know at least. Uh, um, And um, we have a tough Latin sounding name, the Artista. And every gang member has their own gang name on it. Mine is Rumple Foreskin. I tried to get listed in the San Francisco phone book as Rumple Foreskin, and they gave me a very difficult time. Uh, Went all the way up the hierarchy and got an executive who said, We can list you as Foreskin Rumple. But but I refused to compromise. Wasn't the same. That would be like, how would you list Liberace as Achi Liber? That's not the. It's not the same. Uh, um, well, I, we're supposed to talk about here about why we're hopeful um, and optimistic. The main reason I am is because of uh, severely damaged chromosomes. I realize Walt Stewart says it's a myth, but Andy Weil says any placebo works. <laughs> so what are you going to do? <laughs> I mean, what can you expect from a movement that started with hanky-panky? Uh, 
Um, well, look, you have to see what the valleys are in order to appreciate the peaks, in case there are any. Um, well, uh, Colloquium 2 has been going on since yesterday. I thought I would fill you in on a few details that you may have missed. Um, uh, there's a lot, because I've been roaming around watching. There's one guy I see with pretty ladies on his lap, different pretty lady every half hour. And he's developed this uh, lower back massage. And he pinpoints, just like some kind of acupuncture, with, and just really pinpoints... But whenever a good statement is, he, he's willing to lose the pinpoint in order to applaud. So uh, that's one of the things that gives me hope, is that, uh, that, that you can divide your attention between uh, the uh, sensory and the eternal. Uh, in fact, uh, Tim once made a statement, which um, I've wondered about a long time, that smoking marijuana makes you dumb but sensual. Is, is, that, a, is that a fair quote, Tim? Uh, oh, I don't know. I've been smoking. <laughs> uh, uh, well, one of the things I had uh, last night, they had um, a researcher who was trying to test this out. They did this with Canadian mice. Uh, half of them were given marijuana to smoke, and half of them weren't. Um, then all of them were injected with cancer. Now. The half that were still intelligent because uh, they hadn't smoked grass uh, volunteered for the Laetrile experiments. <laughs> and, uh, and, the, and the other half went out and got laid. <laughs> and both groups got cured. <laughs> <laughs> Except all the researchers got warts. <laughs> so, <laughs> They always think of the happy ending that something pops in there. Um, listen, last night there was a discussion of uh, um, how you could be uh, conscious with everything and still have Kundalini. Um, and um, uh, Kundalini always has seemed to me like a very male-oriented pra- sexual practice where uh, the man holds back the ejaculation and reverses the, into a backstroke and the spermatozoa go back the penis up the spine, into the cranial cavity, to cure baldness from the inside. <laughs> there was one group here, it's, it's a new cult, they, they derived their entire theology from Celestial Seasonings tea bag boxes. Uh, one of, the, one of the things that gives me more hope than anything is, is uh, if we were the weirdos, it's the children of the weirdos that give me hope. Uh, I was in Minneapolis a couple of weeks ago, and I met a woman who had a 10-year-old daughter who noticed sexism in a TV commercial that the mother hadn't noticed. A 10-year-old girl said it was a beer commercial for Rondo Beer, and uh, it had a man athlete come in, and he drinks his beer, and then he crushes his beer can. A woman comes in, drinks her beer, and doesn't crush the can. And a 10-year-old girl was uh, perceptive enough to notice that and know the implications of it. So that's one of the things that, uh, that gives me hope, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that kind of consciousness. I also met a six-year-old hash dealer. Uh, that gives me... Uh, uh, this, this wasn't in America, though. Uh, it was in Woodstock. <laughs> uh, um, what they knew, Reagan now wants to spell Woodstock with two C's in order to make up for those people who spelled America with a K. It's uh, sort of an FCC equal time thing. Um, my own daughter, Holly, who is now 17, has given me a lot of reason for hope. Uh, when I was her age, um, 
I couldn't talk to my parents about sex. When she was 16, she called me up and she played Carly Simon's record of Daddy, I'm No Virgin. You know, I mean, uh, I was just, I was proud of her. Uh, there was, I have to admit, a touch of resentment because I wasn't getting any when I was 16. You know, and you try not to have sour grapes, but you think, God, these kids today, they don't appreciate the joy of yearning. Uh, you know, <laughs> well, uh, I mean, they've missed the, the learning experience of blue balls. Uh, is blue balls still, cop, or is it our blue balls? Is, is blue balls a collective noun? Oh, are blue balls a collective noun? I know that when Buckminster Fuller gets blue, blue balls, they're verbs, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, where was I? Oh, okay, so my daughter Holly um, is uh, just graduated high school and they had a, a drug rehabilitation uh, peop- uh, crew come to her class to try and warn the kids about dangers. Uh, and the kids are very sophisticated, but the people from drug rehab have to be very gung-ho so they can stay out of jail. So, and the kids know that, so they kind of play along with them, you know. They, they hear about these tests that uh, not only, I guess that's the second step after what Walt Stewart said. If, if males have breasts in case they're going to have a baby and smoking marijuana can give a male a breast, maybe this is another portent, uh, you know, uh, or else it could cut down on uh, sexual harassment in the office. It just, you know, take a letter while I just fondle myself. <laughs> I keep forgetting, is it the right brain that makes the left nipple erect? Or the, I always get a headache when I try to remember that shit. Uh, the, um, do you know what the mounds of Montgomery are? See, this is an intelligent audience. Where is higher intelligence? Do you know what the mounds of Montgomery are? I mean, it's not a situation comedy, you know, the mounds of Montgomery. It's, you know, your nipples? Uh, that's a rhetorical question, don't introduce yourselves. Uh, and... <laughs> Around the nipples is the aureola, the shady part. Those little bumps are the mounds of Montgomery. I mean, you should know them. Talk to them. They have personalities. They have. You should have mounds of Montgomery consciousness. Uh, I'll bet you know what Bartholin's glands are. That's amazing. Something. It's you know uh, uh, the female love lubricant. Uh, there was a pre-med student uh, named Pete Bartholin who was uh, in the movies with his girlfriend. He said, "Boy, you're juicy." And then he thought, I could get this named after me. What better scientific uh, recognition could you get? <laughs> Do you know what temesis is? Temesis? How is it pronounced? Do you know? Temes- it's, a, it's a medical term for uh, when uh, you've just shat, but you still think you have to shit some more. There's an actual term for that. Uh, okay, I'll, uh, I'll just... Um, <laughs> Am I practicing chemistry up here, or is this... Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. So these drug rehabil- rehabilitation people come and they warn the kids. They say, you know, if you go home, your parents know you've been smoking dope. They can tell your pupils are dilated, uh, your speech is slurred, you have short-term memory loss. And the kids say, what about if you go home and your parents are zonked out? You know, <laughs> your father is speaking slurred and giggling a lot, and you say, hey, mom, and she says, huh? She, she's forgotten her name as well as her role. Uh, um, and they, they admit this is a problem. They, tell, they warn they, they try to give the kids warnings. So how many of you kids here uh, take quaaludes? About six or seven kids have, but they can't raise their hands. So, uh, uh, so he says, if you smoke a joint three days after you've taken quaalude, you'll get the effects of the quaalude again. So 
you know, it's like 1984. It was meant as a warning, and people take it as a blueprint. You know, <laughs> so these kids write down, okay, like a homework assignment, three days, so quaaludes, try it out. Day one, and they just uh, test it out. Um, there was one kid there who asked if silver rectangles was good acid. Now, the drug rehab uh, people had heard of orange sunshine, which was a tab, and green pyramid, which was a jellied substance with the acid injected. They had not heard of silver rectangles until one kid confessed that it was from, the, you know, library books to have this little metal strip, sort of, which has been electronically treated so that if you go through a metal detector, it beeps to show that you've been shoplifting. And so a kid been, had been given those out, and that's what it was, except he was tripping from the placebo effect. Uh, and so... Um, the kids took him down to the library after when the bell rang, and uh, he kept pretending he was stealing books and then going through, and it would beep. And they, would, they finally got completely undressed, uh, uh, and they walked through, and it beeped, so they called in the repair people to do, uh, take care of the machine. Um, okay, let me tell you my, my favorite story about the reason to be optimistic, um, and then I will turn the proceedings back to Tim Leary. Uh, this happened a few years ago at the University of Kansas. There was a... Uh, panel discussion, uh, and on it, uh, the panel were Ken Kesey, myself, uh, Max Lerner, uh, who they got from Rent-A-Liberal, and, uh, um, yeah. <laughs> and probably when he tells us, he says they got us from Rent-A-Weirdo, so it balances out. And there was also a Chicano professor from the university on the uh, panel. Now, at the end of the panel, there were questions, there was a microphone, and people would come up to ask questions, and people would answer them. Um, about halfway through that proceeding, a dwarf who was crippled uh, came up on crutches to the microphone, and everybody kind of remained a little bit tense and silent. This was before uh, the disabled liberation movement, and people were kind of a little bit shocked to see somebody coming forward, uh, a dwarf on crutches to the microphone. And he started lambasting the panel and saying, um, uh, I, for one, resent the pessimism that I've heard coming from this panel. I don't like that negativity. I read a lot of papers in the underground and the overground. I speak to a lot of people on the phone. Uh, I know that bartering is beginning to become popular even in the middle class. I see food co-ops developing. I see people fighting City Hall on every possible imaginative level. He says, I, I see... Um, uh, and he just went on with a, a, a delineation of all the things that he felt there were to be optimistic about. And nobody on the panel wanted to answer him, except the Chicano professor got up and he said, well, that's easy for you to say. You're white. Uh, so, uh, so, uh, so I always try to remember that, moments of optimism. Uh, uh, so I'll leave you now with uh, the, the good news and the bad news. Um, the bad news is if you see the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, they have this clock that they put on the cover periodically, which uh, is the doomsday clock, which tells you uh, how many minutes we have to go according to some time scale that only they know represents. Uh, and um, the um, last time they did it, a few months ago, they updated the clock so it's three minutes to midnight, which means nuclear dev devastation. Uh, that's the bad news. The good news is that, is that scientists, just like the rest of us, they always set their clocks ten minutes ahead. So we have that grace period. Thank you. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. As much as I want to hear the rest of this panel discussion right now, I'm afraid that we're going to have to 
wait for the next podcast to hear it, uh, as we're already over time for today's program. But since I want to hear the rest of it myself as much as you do, I'll get my next podcast out in the next few days. At least that's my intention. Uh, I have to warn you, however, that I work in a place that's uh, called Haggerty's Fancy. And uh, that means that I more or less wind up doing whatever strikes my fancy on any given day. (laughs) Not a bad place to work, all things considered. So I'm going to bring this to an early end today and save my comments for the conclusion of the panel discussion that we've been listening to. But there are a couple of quick announcements that I want to pass along first. One is about Earth Dance. And uh, as you no doubt know, on this coming September 26th, Earth Dance will be held at over 300 locations in more than 60 countries. It's uh, it's an important event in the tribe's annual calendar, and uh, there's most likely one that will be close to where you live. So if you can, uh, surf on over to earthdance.org and uh, find a location near you. Who knows, uh, you may even find some of the others there. And the other event uh, where you'll definitely find some of the others uh, is one I want to mention, and that is the Symbiosis Gathering, which will take place from the 17th through the 21st of September near Yosemite National Park in California. And uh, their website is at symbiosisgathering.com. That's S-Y-M-B-I-O-S-I-S-G-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-G, symbiosisgathering.com. And uh, on their musicians' portal page, I counted over a hundred musical acts that are going to be there. And on the uh, hot air front, uh, or I guess I should say on the intellectual front, you're going to be able to hear from people like uh, Allison and Alex Gray, uh, Starhawk, the physicist Freehoff Copra, uh, Daniel Pinchbeck, and uh, you'll even get a few words from yours truly, because uh, I'll be there as well. So it looks to be a uh, fantastic event, and I, I hope that I see you there. Now, one last thing I want to mention is to uh, thank our fellow Saloners for their very kind and loving messages of uh, support and good wishes that have come in in the past couple of months. I really appreciate your comments about my new novel, uh, The Genesis Generation, and I want you to know that uh, I'm keeping your thoughts in mind as I work on the next volume in the series. So uh, thanks again for all of your good ideas. And now it seems like a good idea to... uh, clear a few other items off my desk so I can get back to editing the rest of the panel discussion we just heard and uh, get it out to you as soon as I can. But first I want to remind you that uh, this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click on the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And uh, if you're interested in uh, hearing what I have to say about the Genesis Generation, you can go to genesisgeneration.us and uh, find a link to a free download of the first chapter if you're interested. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>